0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Nostalgic Mystery Radio. I'm your host, Stevie Kay, and it's my honor to bring you the radio shows of yesteryear. For today's episode, I bring you part four of Agatha Christie's one-two, Buckle My Shoe. So sit back and relax, and I hope you enjoy this Nostalgic Mystery Radio. Thank you for listening.
1: The celebrated banker, Alastair Blunt, had invited me to his country house in Kent to discuss the mystery of Miss Sainsbury's seal. She had disappeared on the evening of the day Mr. Morley, her dentist and my own, had been found shot dead in his surgery. A month later, a body had been found in a block of London flats, dressed in her clothes, the face battered beyond recognition. But the dental record showed that the corpse was that of Sylvia Chapman, the wife of an agent in the Secret Service. And the involvement of the Secret Service suggested that perhaps the intended victim in all this was Alastair Blunt himself.
2: John Moffat as Hercule Poirot and Philip Jackson as Chief Inspector Japp in Agatha Christie's One, Two, Buckle My Shoe.
1: The following morning I was up early and I walked out into the garden.
3: I'm puzzled as to what exactly you have in mind, McAllister. Are you trying to recreate some kind of tropical swamp?
1: A woman with cropped hair, evidently Blunt's relative Helen Montresor, was talking to the head gardener. Closer at hand, a young man was digging and delving. Eleven, twelve, I said to myself. I could not see his face, but something about him seemed strangely familiar. I crept round the side of the kitchen garden to get a closer look at him. It was Frank Carter, the fiancé of Mr. Morley's assistant, Gladys Neville, but he had told her he was working at a secretarial job for ten pounds a week, so why was he digging away, not very expertly, in the garden of Alistair Blunt?
3: It's very kind of you to concern yourself about me, Alistair, but I would prefer not to accept any invitation to the house while Mrs. Oliveira and her daughter are staying with you.
4: Julia's a tactless woman, you know that, Helen, but I'm sure she doesn't mean to be
3: In cool. my opinion, her manner to me is very insolent, and I'll not put up with it.
4: <sighs> Women really are the devil. Oh, good morning, Monsieur Poirot. Uh, may I uh, have a quiet word with you? Of course. Come and have a spot of breakfast.
1: Uh, You have a young gardener whom
4: I imagine you have taken on recently. That's right. My third gardener left about a month ago and we took this fellow on. Do you remember where he came from? McAllister, the head gardener, engaged him. What is his name? I really don't remember. Sunbury, something
1: like that. Now, would it be a great impertinence to ask what you pay him?
4: Not at all. £2.15, I think it is. Not more? Certainly not more. Might be a bit less. Oh, now this is very curious, because you Have you you seen
5: the Times this morning, Uncle Alistair? A lot of people seem to be out for your blood.
4: You mustn't believe what you read in the papers, Jane. Archerton has the wildest ideas about finance. If the government let him have his way, England would be bankrupt within a week.
5: Don't you ever want to try anything new?
4: Not unless it's an improvement on the old.
5: But how can you tell if you don't give new ideas a chance? All the waste and inequality and unfairness... Don't you ever want to do anything about it all?
4: We get along pretty well in this country, Jane, all things considered.
5: What we need is a new heaven and a new earth. And you sit there eating kidneys. Well, don't be surprised when the revolution comes.
4: I don't like it, you know, Monsieur Poirot. Everyone seems to be talking this kind of rubbish nowadays. And it's nothing but so much hot air. And I feel as if I were the last of the old guard. If you were removed what would happen removed what a curious way to put it but I'll tell you this a lot of damned fools would try a lot of very costly experiments and that would be the end of our economic stability and solvency in fact this England of ours as we know it he had all my sympathy I
1: too approved of solvency and stability for the first time I realized fully what Alistair Blanche stood for. And I felt afraid.
4: Now, Monsieur Poirot, I've finished my letters and done enough to give myself a little break. Mm -hmm. I'm going to take you on a tour of the garden. It's the one achievement in my life of which I'm really proud. And so, for the next
1: 20 minutes, I trudged after him while he held forth on the rare species of alpine plants. But all I could think of was the pain in my feet caused by my elegantly tight patent leather shoes we moved towards the line of the laurel hedge where someone was hard at work with a pair of shears
4: look at the vista from here monsieur poirot Hmm. it's almost as though the hills over there had been designed to be part of the garden and can you smell the sweet williams (laughs) what the devil was that
6: drop the gun drop
4: it you bastard!
6: let go of me i didn't fire it's got nothing to do with me hasn't it So what were you trying to do? Frighten
4: the birds? Well, one of you tell me exactly what's going on. Your gardener just took a pot shot at you. I
6: got hold of him before he could have another go. It's not true. I was clipping the hedge when I heard the shot, and the gun suddenly fell right at my feet. I picked it up. That's only natural, isn't it? And then this bastard jumped on me. The gun was in your hand, and it had just been fired. Let's hear what the great detective has to say about it. I guess there are several more shots left.
1: Hmm? Five more,
4: to be precise. Oh, then, Sunbury, or whatever your name is.
1: The man's name is Frank Carter, and she is certainly not a gardener. You've had it in for me all along, trying to tie me up with trick questions, worming information out of Gladys. But it's none of it true. I never shot at him. Then in that case, who did?
4: There is no one here but ourselves. Miss Montresor was here a little while back. Well, she's not here now, and I hardly think that Helen what would have... What
5: the ha- hell's going on? Howard, what are
4: you... I've been saving your uncle's life.
5: Is this one of your silly jokes? No,
4: no, Jane, it's no joke. He seems to have arrived at a very opportune moment.
5: This is Howard Rakes, Uncle Alistair. He's a friend of mine.
4: So, you're the young man I've heard so much about. Well, I must thank you.
5: Well, what's happened? I heard a shot. You are right, Alistair. Rakes! What the hell are you doing here? How dare you? Howard has just saved Uncle Alistair's life, Mother. This man took a shot at him, but Howard grabbed him and took the gun away from him.
4: You're bloody liars, all of you.
7: My dear Alistair, thank God you weren't hurt. It must have been the most terrible shock. It's made me feel quite faint. Do you think I could have a little brandy? Of
4: course, Julia. Let's get back to the house. Can you bring this fellow along, Mr. Rakes? I'll get on to the police right away. It's all a lie. You know it is. You're strangely quiet, Monsieur Poirot, for a
6: world-famous detective. It isn't thanks to you that Mr. Blunt is still alive. This is your
1: second good deed of this kind, is it not, Mr. Hakes? Well, yes, I do seem to be making a habit of it. But there is a difference. Yesterday, the man you caught was not the man who fired the shot. You made a mistake. (laughs) And he's making another mistake now. I didn't fire that shot. What exactly are you doing here at Exha, Mr Carter? You span a fantastic story for Miss Neville about an important job in the country at ten pounds a week. And I find you here as an undergardener at barely a quarter of that sum. I'm working as an undercover agent. That sounds
6: a very likely story. It's true. I was approached by the Secret Service and told to report here as a gardener. I was instructed to keep them informed about what the other gardeners and the servants were doing. I was warned there was some kind of conspiracy against Mr Blunt. And that's why you tried to kill him, I suppose. Let's go back to the house and you can tell your story to the police.
1: It was pathetically unconvincing, of course. Just the kind of story that a thoroughly inadequate character like Frank Carter would invent. But why did he persist in repeating it? Mr. Rakes, on the other hand, had benefited considerably. When a man has saved you from an assassin's bullet, you can hardly forbid him the house. Come in.
6: Surprised to see me, Monsieur Poirot? Hmm. I've been keeping my eye on you all evening. I didn't like the thoughtful way you were looking.
1: Why should that worry you, my friend?
6: I figured maybe you were finding... Certain things just a bit hard to swallow. And if so? Well, I decided I'd better come clean about that business in Downing Street. You see, I happened to be watching Blunt coming out of number ten, and I saw Vasco take a shot at him. Now, I happen to know Vasco. He's a bit excitable, but a really nice kid, and there was no harm done. The bullet had gone far wide. So I decided to put on a bit of a show to help Vasco get away. I grabbed hold of a shabby-looking specimen just by me and shouted out that I'd got the gunman. But the cops were too smart. They were on to Vasco like a flash. That's how
1: it was. And today? That was different. Carter was the only
6: man on the spot, and he'd got the
1: pistol in his hand. You were very concerned to preserve Mr. Blunt
6: from harm? (laughs) I suppose it must seem a bit strange after all the things I've said about him. I think Blunt is a guy who ought to be put down in the interest of progress and humanity. Though he's a nice enough old boy in his way. But the moment I see someone aiming a gun at him, I jump in and interfere. Just goes to show how illogical a human animal is. I just thought I'd come along and explain how
8: things were.
1: The next day, I accompanied Mr. Blunt and his family to morning service at the village church.
4: Can't let the parson down, you know. Leave me, O Lord, from the hands of
8: the
5: wicked.
8: Me from
1: the I listened to the words of the psalm the choir was singing, and suddenly... It was as if the scales had fallen from my eyes. The
3: proud have hid a snare for me and calls. They have spread a net by the wayside.
1: The proud have hid a snare for me. They have spread a net by the wayside. For the first time, I saw clearly the trap into which I had so nearly fallen, and all those conflicting and contradictory facts began to settle into a pattern.
4: The text for my sermon this morning is taken from the first book of Samuel, chapter 15. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king.
1: Doesn't it ever worry you that wherever you happen to go,
9: people start popping off guns at one another? (laughs) I've often thought that if you sat quietly in your apartment all day long, the crime rate in this country would be halved. Anyway, I gather you caught young Mr Carter red-handed.
1: It was perhaps all a little too convenient.
9: You always have to make difficulties for yourself when simple, plain facts are staring you in the face. But that's not the reason I rang you up. You remember Mr Riley...
1: Mooney's partner?
9: We've been keeping an eye on him, and it's come to our notice that he's about to leave the country. There's no way we can prevent him, but I thought you might drop in on him, find out where he's going for his holidays.
8: Oh, no, Monsieur Poirot, it's not a holiday, exactly. I'm off to America, and I don't know whether I'll be planning on coming back. You are abandoning your practice here, then? It would be nearer the mark if you said it was abandoning me. Oh, I'm very sorry to hear that. It doesn't really worry me. When I think of the debts I should leave behind me unpaid, I'm a happy man. I've got good qualifications, and I shall be better off starting all over again. Did you agree with the verdict of
1: the coroner's quote on your partner's death? I did not. You don't think he made a mistake
8: in the strength of the anaesthetic? If Morley injected that Greek with the amount they said he did, he was either drunk or he wanted to kill the man, and I've never seen Morley drunk. You mean it was deliberate? I'm not saying that. Why should he kill a man he'd never met before? Did you see Morley on the day of his death? No. You're sure? Well, I'd not say that, but I don't
1: remember. You did not perhaps... Go up to his room about 11.35 when he had a patient
8: there? Yeah, you're quite right, I did. Uh, there was a technical query about some instruments he'd ordered, but I was only there for a moment. There is something I
1: always intended to ask you. After Mr. Reichs had walked
8: out on you, what did you do with your vacant half-hour? What I always do with vacant half-hours. Mixed myself a drink. And after Mr. Barnes left... I understand you had no patience after half-past twelve. I didn't go up and shoot Morley, if that's what you're suggesting. Mind you, you've only got my word for it. But if you think that's why I'm off to America, you've got another thing coming. I'll show you the stack of unpaid bills if you don't believe me. Riley
1: had been Mr. Burns' principal suspect, the key figure in the conspiracy against Alistair Blunt, but I found it difficult to imagine him in that role. The case still hinged, to my mind, on the enigmatic figure of Miss Sainsbury Seal. Japp had managed to trace a woman who was an old friend of hers, a Missus Adams, who lived in a quiet road just off Hampstead Heath.
3: I cannot tell you what a relief it was to hear it wasn't May Bell's body they found in that trunk. A case of mistaken identity was what they said. Some poor woman called Sylvia Chapman.
1: Now, you knew Miss Sainsbury's seal when she was in India, did you not? Uh, do you know whether she was acquainted with Mr. Alistair Blunt or his wife while they were out there?
3: Mr. Blunt, the famous banker, do you mean? Mm-hmm. I remember he stayed with the Viceroy. But I'm sure if Maybelle had met him, she would certainly have told me. I'm afraid one does usually mention the important people. We're all such snobs and name-droppers at heart.
1: <laughs> But she never spoke of the Blunts, Mrs. Blunt in particular.
3: She was a millionairess, wasn't she, who'd been married to some Italian prince. I don't believe Maybelle ever knew anybody like that. Her friends were all very ordinary people, like me. Oh,
1: madame.
3: (laughs) She knew a lot of people who were involved with the missions, of course. She was so concerned over her good works, Monsieur Poirot, but she found it harder and harder to get subscriptions out of people, what with the rises in income tax and all that. I remember she said to me once, when one knows what money can do, the wonderful good you can accomplish with it, well, really, I feel I could commit a crime to get hold of it. That shows how strongly she felt, doesn't it, Monsieur Poirot?
1: When did she say that? Do you remember, madame?
3: Oh, must have been about three months ago. I do so wish I knew what had become of her. I feel sure she must have lost her memory. Don't you?
9: You know, I'm beginning to wonder if I've been wrong about this. If Maybelle really felt that strongly about raising money for her missions, do you think she could have been in some racket with Amberiotis after all? They came on the same boat from India. They lunched together at the Savoy. But
1: raising money is one thing. Participating in extortion is quite another. Surely it would be completely out of character. Yes,
9: but what is her character? On the one hand, we have this rather dotty lady whose life revolved around play-acting and elocution lessons and good works. And on the other, we have a woman who appears to have murdered Sylvia Chapman in cold blood, battered her face in and left her in a trunk to rot. Do you think we could be dealing with some kind of split personality? Is Miss Sainsbury seal really a female Jekyll and Hyde?
1: I walked home by way of Regent's Park, turning over in my mind the possibilities suggested by what Jap had said. Were there in fact two Miss Sainsbury seals? By the water, a couple were sitting together beneath a tree, Jane Olivera and Howard Rakes.
5: Why? Monsieur Poirot, you do turn up in the most unexpected places.
1: Rather like a
6: jack-in-the-box. I trust I do not intrude? Oh, no. That's rather a matter of opinion.
5: Be quiet, Howard. You need to learn manners.
6: What's the good of manners? They won't save the world.
5: You'll find they kind of help the world along. I can get by because I'm rich and moderately good-looking, but... I'm in no
6: mood for small talk, Jane. I guess I'll take myself off.
1: Goodbye, Monsieur Poirot. Goodbye, Mr. Aix. Oh, alas, mademoiselle, the proverb is true. When you are courting, two is company, but three is too much, n'est-ce pas?
5: Courting? What a word.
1: Thirteen, fourteen maids are courting. What's that? Oh, just a silly nursery rhyme that keeps coming into my head.
5: Monsieur Poirot, I want to apologize to you. I thought you'd wormed your way in with my uncle so that you could come down to Exham to spy on Howard... But after you'd gone, Uncle told me that he'd invited you there because he wanted you to clear up the mystery of this Sainsbury Seal woman. Is that right?
1: Yes, Mademoiselle, it is.
5: So I'm sorry for what I said that evening. I really thought you'd got it in for Howard because of his politics.
1: Even if it were true, I was an excellent witness to the fact that Mr. Rakes bravely saved your uncle's life by springing upon his assailant and preventing him from firing another shot.
5: You've got a funny way of putting things, Monsieur Poirot. I can never be certain whether you're serious or not.
1: At the moment, I am very serious, Miss Oliveira.
5: Have you found that woman my uncle wanted to know about?
1: Let us say that I know where she is. Is she dead? I have not said so.
5: She's alive, then?
1: I have not said that, either.
5: She's got to be one or the other,
1: surely. Actually, it is not so simple.
5: I think you just like making things difficult.
1: Hmm, it has been said of me, mademoiselle.
5: Howard wants me to marry him, at once, without letting anyone know. He says it's the only way I'll ever do it. What do you think, Monsieur Poirot?
1: Why ask me to advise you?
5: What kind of advice do you think I'd get from the others? Mother would scream the place down. Uncle Alistair would tell me that Howard was an odd fish and that there was no sense in rushing things.
1: And your friends?
5: I haven't got any friends. Howard's the only real person I've ever met.
1: Even so, why me?
5: Because you've got a queer look on your face. As though you were sorry for something. Isn't it funny? It's a warm, sunny day, and suddenly I feel cold.
9: I thought I'd just pop in to tell you what a blooming marvel you are.
1: How do you do it, Will you perhaps take some refreshment, a little whisky, maybe?
9: A whisky would go down very well, thanks. Here we have a lovely, straightforward case of suicide, but HB says it's murder, and damn it all, it is murder.
1: So you agree at last?
9: Well, nobody can say I'm pig-headed. I don't fly in the face of the evidence. So I've come to make the amend honourable, as you call it. Ah, thank you very much. Well, as to Hercule Poirot, who was always right. Oh, no, mon ami. So here it is. The pistol that Frank Carter tried to shoot Blunt with is a twin to the one that killed Morley. But Frank Carter, this is not possible. What's the matter with you, Poirot? First you insist that it wasn't suicide but murder, and when I come round to tell you we agree with you, you don't believe it. You really think that Morley was murdered by Frank Carter? Well, it all fits together... Carter had a grudge against Morley. He came along to Queen Charlotte Street that morning to have it out with him. But I understood he had come to tell Miss Neville about the job he had been offered. He didn't go along to see about the job until the following day. He admits as much. And as for the job, well, he says he was interviewed by a woman from the Secret Service who told him she was known as GH5. She had red hair and a lot of makeup, and the light was rather dim, I ask him. Pure Phillips Oppenheim.
1: Ah! Uh, hmm Uh, Yes, George? Miss Neville? Yes, I will see her. Show her in in five
9: minutes, if you will. In that case, I'm off. I don't really need hysterical young ladies at the moment. I'll let myself out the back way.
7: You've got to help us, Monsieur Poirot. There's no one else who can.
1: But surely Mr Carter has a solicitor.
7: Lawyers are so difficult. They won't say anything straight out. The trouble is... That Frank's one of those black shirts. You know, the people who march about with banners and who do those silly salutes. And they work up young men like Frank and goad them on to do stupid things. And they think they're being so wonderful and patriotic.
1: And you think he may have been egged on to shoot at Mr Blunt?
7: He swears he never did and that he'd never even seen the pistol before. And now they're saying he killed poor Mr Morley, but he couldn't have done.
1: Even so, he did not tell the truth. He did not come round to tell you about his new job that morning. So what was he doing there?
7: To tell you the truth, I think he'd been drinking, and he wanted to have it out with Mr Morley. Of course it was foolish of him, but I know he isn't a murderer. You've got to help us. If only I could feel that you were on our side.
1: But I could be on no one's side. I could be only on the side of truth. And the following morning, there came a letter. A letter from Morley's housemaid, Agnes Fletcher.
10: "'hoping as you will forgive me for troubling you, "'but I'm very worried and don't know what to do. "'I know that perhaps I ought to have told something, "'but as they said the master had shot himself, "'I thought it was all right, "'and I wouldn't have liked to get Miss Neville's young man into trouble. never really thought for a moment that he'd done it, "'but now I see that he's been took up for shooting at a gentleman in the country, "'and perhaps he isn't quite all there, "'and I ought to say what I saw.' I don't want Miss Morley to know about all this, so I'll be in the donkey cart tea rooms in Hartford High Street every day this week at 2.30pm.
1: 15.16. It took the best part of 20 minutes for this particular maid in the kitchen to come to the point. First, I had to hear how neither her mother nor her father had ever had any trouble with the police, despite the fact that he had been proprietor of licensed premises, and how if Agnes were to get mixed up with the law, they would probably both die of shame. She was into her third cup of tea before she came up with what she wanted to say.
10: It's the morning of Mr Morley's death. I'd been wondering if I'd dare run downstairs to get the post. Alfred only brought it up if it was for Mr or Miss Morley, and I was wanting to see if there was anything for me. And Miss Morley didn't like me going down to the hall during business hours. So I thought I'd go out on the landing to see if I could catch Alfred taking a patient up to the master.
1: So that he could tell you if there was a letter for you.
10: Oh, yes, sir. And it was then i seen him, Frank Carter, halfway up the stairs, our stairs above Mr Morley's surgery, He didn't see me, and he was standing there looking down. He seemed to be listening for something.
1: What time was this?
10: Oh, he must have been getting on for half past twelve, and I was wondering whether I should tell him that Miss Neville had gone away for the day, when he suddenly seemed to make up his mind, and he went down the stairs very quick, and went along the passage to the master's surgery, and... I thought to myself, Mr Morley won't like this at all. And I thought there might be a row. And then, of course, afterwards, when I heard the master had shot himself, it was so awful that it drove everything out of my head.
1: But later you decided to keep quiet about it. Well,
10: it? Like I said, sir, I didn't want to get into trouble with the police. But when I read in the papers that he'd been arrested, I thought he might be one of those madmen who go around killing people and that perhaps he did shoot the master after all.
2: In part four of Agatha Christie's One, Two, Buckle My Shoe Hercule Poirot was played by John Moffat Chief Inspector Jap by Philip Jackson Alistair Blunt, Philip Franks Riley, Stephen Tomkinson Mrs. Oliveira, Joanna McCallum Jane Oliveira, Amanda Waring Howard Rakes, Robert Portal Gladys Neville, Sophie Arnold Frank Carter, Dominic Colchester Mrs. Adams, Amanda Walker Agnes, Teresa Gallagher The psalm was sung by the cast directed by Tom Smale who composed the music One Two Buckle My Shoe is dramatized for radio by Michael Bakewell and directed by Enid Williams